if we criticize the writing or if we criticize how like dorky and silly it is, I do think a lot of the response to that has been like, oh, so you don't like that there's a South Asian woman on the show? Mm-hmm. You don't like that there's a non-binary mm-hmm. Mexican? It's like, uh, nobody no, has a it's problem. It's not about that. Welcome to Feminist Frequency Radio. This is the show that asks you to be critical of the media you love. I'm Kat Spada, and today we're taking a look at the newest chapter in the Sex and the City universe with the second season of its sequel series, And Just Like That. From The Carrie Diaries to the groundbreaking show, followed by two feature films of questionable quality, the characters of Sex and the City persist in And Just Like That, for the most part. Sarah Jessica Parker, Cynthia Nixon, and Kristen Davis return as Carrie, Miranda, and Charlotte, respectively. And this time, they're joined by new friends and lovers, including those played by Sarah Ramirez, Sarita Chowdhury, Nicole Ari Parker, and Karen Pittman. Wealthy Manhattanites in their 50s navigate life, love, and loss in this iteration of the story. And reviews are as mixed as viewership is high. Joining me this week is one of my lifelong friends, Halabi Yatur. Pallavi is a licensed mental health counselor and screenwriter with an MFA in creative nonfiction. Her opinion and criticism has appeared in Salon, NBC News, and the Los Angeles Review of Books. She's the author of the advice column Ask Pallavi for Girl X, and she has served as the nonfiction editor and lead copy editor for the Coachella Review. Pallavi also teaches emotional fitness classes for the mental health service COA, and she's a silver medal winning amateur pole athlete. <laughs> Yes, I am. Thank you, Kat. <laughs> I thought that was very valid and important to include here. Thank you. I appreciate that. I think uh, I'm refinding my pole community now that I am back in LA, and it feels very good. Good. Yeah. And back in person. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Virtual pole doesn't have the, quite the same cachet. <laughs> Halavi, thank you so much. We have done a little bit of podcasting together. Yes. Um, but this felt like a really fun topic for us. <laughs> <laughs> I cannot wait to get into it. <laughs> like, first of all, one thing that I really like about doing Feminist Frequency Radio is that, like, you can have a feminist media criticism of literally anything. Mm-hmm. The last full episode we did was Anita and I talking about Roadhouse. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> And like, obviously you're like, where's the media read there? Check it out. I mean, a lot of it was us thirsting up for Patrick Sweezy. But this is a show where I remember learning about the Bechdel test and being <laughs> like, oh, so Sex and the City passes the Bechdel test, but does that mean it's feminist? Right, right. Oh, that's interesting. Like yeah. on paper. <laughs> okay, so we've known each other since high school. Mm-hmm. Sex and the City was still on. I mean, I think it came on when we were in... A little younger than that. It started late 90s, right? 98, yeah. something like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's when I started high school. Yeah. And like, what's your what's your relationship to Sex and the City? I don't think I even knew about it. I mean, we were not an HBO owning household. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I don't think I knew about it until college yeah. when I had a chance to really watch it. But, uh, you know, my sister, Silpa, who was in your class, she yeah. and I were really into it. Uh, we bought the, you know, pink velvet box set that everyone, oh, yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, so it, it really did become the kind of comfort 
repeated rewatch that people are sort of doing now with friends yeah. uh, for us. So, but that was definitely kind of late teens, early twenties for me. Yeah. And then I saw both movies in the theater, Mm -hmm. you know, for better or worse. (laughs) (laughs) I was watching these uh, episodes of Angels Like That with my partner who hasn't really watched any of it. And I was trying to explain like Carrie's wedding from the movie (laughs) (laughs) to him. And I realized like, yeah, like I didn't ever think of myself as like a big fan of this show, but it was really ubiquitous. Like it was just such a part of culture. Like I think that was one of the first, like you could take the Sex and the City tour when you went to New York Yeah, and they were synced up with so many fashion, cupcakes, cocktails, like, (laughs) no, I mean, no, no, you're right. Absolutely. Yeah. Or just like ordering Cosmos yeah. being like the thing. I felt like it really did define a certain type of like femininity. Mm-hmm. And I don't know about, you know, why people are driven to move to New York City. But for me, you know, I think I followed a trend of people in their early 20s in the 90s and aughties yeah. who found the romanticism of New York City in that show to be so appealing that, you know, I did, I moved there. I lived there for 13 years. So, I mean, we can talk about how they deal with the city as well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And they're dealing with LA too. Mm -hmm. So I think the other thing that always comes up for me, I've been rewatching a little bit of Younger, Mm -hmm. which is also, uh, which is Darren Starr. Yes. And we, you and I have talked a lot about Beverly Hills 90210. Um, Created by Darren Starr. That still seems so wild to me. I know, right? I loved Younger. I felt like there was a similar ethos, but it was it was just so much fun. There was, yeah. a, there was a gimmick to it, right? There was like a, a yeah. shtick. And the, I mean, ultimately all of these things are relying on a charming cast. Yeah. And Younger really has that. Mm-hmm. But between Darren Starr and Michael Patrick King, we have a world of women created by gay men. Yes. Yeah. And that is really, I still haven't, I'll never unpack that. (laughs) I know that's been such a major criticism, especially of, and just like that, because now you're dealing with women in middle age, women Mm -hmm. who are aging and like all of the aging jokes in season one were like the lowest hanging fruit. There was just no nuance to the experience of aging as a woman. And I think at the time I drew a a comparison between that and um, Grace and Frankie, Uh which just deals with aging and relationships in such an amazing way, in such a complicated way. And it just like that felt really missing. And there is really nothing you can do to avoid the reality of like, well, is this how women are seen by like through a male gaze, even if it is a gay male gaze? Especially when so much of, I mean, the show is about sex, right? Or it's about like love, sex, dating relationships. And it's also about career yeah. and like friendships. Like there are so many things where it does seem like how can, you know, potentially it's just like, well, maybe Michael Patrick King couldn't write a show that was at the time that was about like gay men living large sure. in Manhattan. Right. But he could acquire the rights to, uh, Candace, Candace Bushnell's, yeah. Bushnell's book and mm-hmm. say, well, yeah, I mean, this is how we're dating and this is how we're going out. And like, let's just kind of, 
try to fold them in together. Yeah. And right. Like I think the, the camp in the voice of the show, as well as the, the kind of aspirational extravagance of their lifestyles that, that did really build and it got, you know, kind of peak in that second movie where they go to Abu Dhabi or whatever. (laughs) I mean, Kim Cattrall, who will win my heart for my entire life for everything, but her line delivery of Lawrence of My Labia (laughs) in that movie. And, tell me, please, have you seen Kim Cattrall's jazz scatting video with her ex-husband? No. Okay. (laughs) I I will be linking this in the show notes. It is so intense because it's clear that her husband at the time was like really into being an upright bassist and jazz musician and Kim Cattrall is like there and (laughs) has to talk really positively about it and it is what a trooper I I think about it all like all the time oh my god I have to you know what I think about all the time and used to watch all the time during like I think the height of sex in the city or maybe around the time it had ended she did this sex documentary for HBO yeah Kim Cattrall she produced it she narrated it and it was it was really lovely it was you know there there were queer interviews there were interviews with all kinds of academics about sex sexuality the history of it and it really kind of became her brand via the show I, I I probably write the most yeah that she was destigmatizing sex mm-hmm. and creating sex positivity and creating this dialogue so I mean I just found that documentary to be so fascinating and so beautiful and yeah, very commendable. I loved that she did that. And this is why she's the best. She was like, I don't need to do more of this show. Yeah. Before we get any deeper, I will just say at the time of recording, we've only watched the first three episodes of season two of And Just Like That. So we're talking like kind of overall about the uh, Carrie Bradshaw world. But if possible, I'll check in at the end of the episode on episodes four and five, which will have come out by the time you're listening to this. So you mentioned the second movie where they they leave Manhattan. <laughs> Let's just leave it. At, I mean, any le- leaving of Manhattan is any leaving of like the Upper East Side is yeah. a big deal for these women. Right. And there's been a lot of criticism of how in this new chapter of the show, they were like, but now they know women of color. <laughs> uh-huh. And I like, I just read a really great interview with a comedian who I'll link that in the show notes too, who was like basically fielding these questions about like, why, for example, is Che Diaz so dorky? Mm-hmm. And like, you know, they're, how like it just feels very much like very out of touch in a way that's just trying so hard why are we still watching that's the question like this season one was so cringy and uncomfortable they had just like made such a mess of the character miranda in a way that was deeply unsatisfying to those of us who really found her as a kindred spirit and it's like miranda would not be that (laughs) you know that's antithetical to what she would be you know this very out of touch like prudish all of them kind of becoming prudish after everything that happened in the original show although i think carrie's always been a prude i think that's true right yes but and and charlotte a, a little bit too this is like really going back into the history books but charlotte is supposed to be a prude yeah but then 
she would always be like doing sex stuff with her husband that Carrie would be like, I would never do that. And it was like, <laughs> who cares? Like, right, you know? right. Carrie was always pretty judgy and that wasn't really made clear until much later, I think. The ethos of this podcast is to be critical of the media that we love. And I think mm-hmm. that's the thing with this show and another recent HBO show, which is The Gilded Age, mm-hmm. where I'm like, I don't like this. I no. don't love this. When is the next episode yeah. out? <laughs> totally. Immediately. I know. There's, I think, well, a lot of that, I think, goes to, like, the vis- visual lushness of both yeah. of those shows, really. I mean, it is such a seductive environment. Both of them set in, like, literally the same part of New York City. <laughs> Just, <laughs> yeah. like, a hundred years apart. <laughs> Where the, the general generational wealth takes you. Exactly, exactly. It's like the before and after of these yeah. women. It turns out Charlotte is the descendant of <laughs> whatever Christine Meryl daughter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. They, Okay, so we're both writers, um, <laughs> not not yet ever employed to write uh, <laughs> filmed content, but the writing on this show is so bad, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's so it it's so cheesy and inhuman, like it's so alien that yeah. I think, oh, this is on purpose. Like this is a cartoon, so it's got a certain si- type of speech but uh for example when Seema who is a high powered real realtor real estate agent gets love advice from her hair salon yeah. <laughs> she's like i pay you to blow me not to shrink me it's like literally nobody has ever talked like that but it works yeah it does work that's a great character actually i super appreciate Seema, not only because i'm south asian and you know they they cast such an amazing actress for that but it's like a different obviously i think she's meant to be a little bit of the samantha stand-in the kind of irreverent like sex positive character but the we're getting to see like material extravagance in like a career that would actually earn it like yes <laughs> real estate <laughs> yes although <laughs> so samantha sense. was a publicist right that's true yeah she was making money but yeah carrie is like a half a podcaster <laughs> and half a columnist i guess she's by this point she's a se- successful author but yeah author sure i just like just watching the original show at least in the first seasons it's kind of like okay she lives a normal life she has this little apartment she smokes cigarettes whatever she but then, her extravagance is the shoes the, the shoes fashion. fine yeah. and then but then the shoes and the extravagance grows but like her call her weekly column remains like is she <laughs> making four thousand dollars a week on this column yeah. <laughs> is that what the New York Post stand-in is paying her. (laughs) (laughs) I, I'm really, I was really interested watching these episodes thinking about how, okay, so Carrie is a writer. Mm -hmm. Shay Diaz is a stand-up comic. Mm -hmm. So the writers of this show have to write for these characters. And in the first episode of season two, you get a snippet of Carrie's podcast and a snippet of Che on stage at like the comedy store. And it's such temp dialogue. Like we'll <laughs> fix that later where Carrie's like, I'm no expert, but here's my opinion about your life question caller in her. And someone's just like, 
great podcast carry. <laughs> and then Shay on stage literally says, I'm so lazy, nobody walks in LA. Well, that's been my time. <laughs> like, they, they could not, they could not write a joke, like yeah. one joke for this stand-up comic. I know. I just read a profile on Sara Ramirez. Um and I guess one of the writers that was interviewed was saying it's a little bit of a, it's not as generous as we had hoped that people aren't assuming that we are in on the jokes. Yeah. And yeah. I'm like, mm, in what way are you in on? I would like to know more about yeah. that. Please. <laughs> That's where it also gets to be like, if we criticize the writing or if we criticize how like dorky and silly it is, I do think a lot of the response to that has been like, oh, so you don't like that there's a South Asian woman on the show? You don't like that there's a non-binary mm-hmm. Mexican? It's like, uh, nobody no, has a it's problem. It's not about that. Right, exactly. I mean, like, we still want to see characters on TV that we can see ourselves in. And I think Sex and the City has steadily kind of moved away from characters like that. Yeah. So even in introducing these new people, there is this piece missing in their humanity, I think. Yeah. Now, what do you think about... Like, this is where I think this show has a real tangible value is I'm really impressed by the by the sex in the show. Mm-hmm. The first episode of this season starts with, like, nudity that's both sexual and non-sexual. Like, Miranda has a great comedy beat where she's, like, full frontal nude trying to get out of a sensory deprivation yeah. tank. <laughs> yeah. And, like, that is definitely something we are not used to seeing on TV, which is women over 40, let alone over 50, who are having robust sex lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I liked that that sequence in the beginning of the first episode reminded me of, like, the montage at the beginning of Devil Wears Prada, like, a bunch of hot girls, like, walking through the street, but these were all, like, women walking to their respective partners in bed and kind of, like, leaving quite a bit to the imagination, which is another thing, like, Sex and the City has struck this balance of, like, showing stuff and, and, and leaving things to suggestion which is, you know, not like most other HBO shows. So right. there's something really important about the intentionality with which yeah. they use sex. When I think about, uh, I did grow up in an HBO household and sex in the city. Like it was, I was just young enough that, oh, it fell into the like real sex taxi cab mm-hmm. confessions. <laughs> like, oh, if I want to like watch sexy stuff on TV late at night, like, but then you would get sucked into Sex in the City because yeah. it's about these friends who were living this fabulous life. And then it stopped being a sex- like sexual content very early. Um, and also, I think it does a better job with the friendships now mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. than it did in the original show. And I think that, I don't know what to attribute that to, but uh, it feels real to me. I mean you know, you and I have been friends for decades, right? Like how you have these like sisterhood type relationships. Yeah, I agree with you. That's a really good point. Cause I think that there was something about the original four in the original series that I was like, they have such a sisterhood. We don't know that much about how it was developed, mm-hmm. but they are so ride or die for each other. And I'm kind of like, Oh, I really wish I had a crew like that. Like, yeah. But I think that what you're saying is that now that they have been women, full women who have lived full lives and gone mm-hmm. through shit together, like, am I allowed to say shit? 
Oh, yes. Okay. Sorry, Rob. They've gone through a lot together, and I think that that's showing in the depth of their friendships. Now, like, the way that they're reaching out to each other for support feels really real. Um, Yeah. Yeah, because there was, like, a little bit of a frivolity to those. Remember at the end of the first movie? Was it the end of the first movie where... Or maybe it's the end of the series where it's a bunch of groups of four girls just like walking. Yeah. And there are all these like young, hot girls who are meant to be kind of representations of them at at a younger age. And I'm just like, nobody's friend groups look like that. No. I I think Broad City tried to do the same thing too. It it like ended with different little pairs of pals throughout, Mm -hmm. but like, was just kind of saying, yeah, this is us. Like, this is the version now where we're working dead-end jobs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, like, we don't have a crazy amount of money and we, you know, but you do still have, like, people that matter. Yeah. Um, so I, one reason I'm kind of excited, I didn't think about it as much until I was, like, putting the show notes together, but Carrie Bradshaw, she is an advice columnist... She lives in New York. Like, I mean, to me, this character, like, it's so strange of a character that I just think that has to be what Candace Bushnell just is like. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Plus, Sarah Jessica Parker has obviously made this character a lot of, like, with her own self. But I would love to talk to you. So you are a licensed counselor. You do a lot of work with mental health not only like um, clinical work, Mm -hmm. but also with uh, writing and offering advice and mostly to me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Like Carrie, I think, began as a confessional writer, right? Mm -hmm. She was just, this was the Carrie Diaries, right? She was telling us about her life. And and I blowing like up the spot of all of her friends as well. (laughs) Yeah, and her boyfriend. (laughs) Yeah. Now I feel like she's sort of in this position where she's supposed to be like taking on emotional weight of others. And she is not somebody who is equipped for that. Yeah, definitely. not. It would be like asking Taylor Swift for dating advice, just because like we've, we've followed your love life and we've followed all of your storytelling about it. Is that, does that make you someone who's an expert necessarily? Which is like, I don't know, what is an expert in dating? But I think that the way that they're utilizing Carrie as like a, what should I do about this thing? Is meant to echo like that she's been through weird stuff (laughs) sexually and in the dating world that everybody knows about. But her advice, like in this show, especially in the first three episodes of this season, has just been so generic. It's like, well, and that's the thing about like being an advice columnist and a therapist is that I'm not telling anybody what to do. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to get people to to think about it in a certain way so that they can figure out what to do. Because like right. Carrie doesn't know these people. She doesn't know what's going to be the best thing for them. And it's going to be way easier, I'm sure, to follow very directive advice versus advice that is meant to be reflective. Right. But yeah, I think that I saw she said something like, just like um what was it? Someone was like, why is my boyfriend like not committing or something? I'm trying to gauge if my casual hookup is actually going to become more serious. And Carrie was like, what did she say? Like drop some hints or something. Yeah. It's like a man will tell you when he wants to go to relationship place or something. And I was like, all right. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, so, right. So the woman has no agency here. She just has to sit around and wait for it. Yeah. Did you ever watch A Million Little Things? I saw the first season of that. In the later seasons, Maggie, who is a therapist, mm-hmm. uh, becomes a radiotherapist. Oh. And she has, she first it starts with her criticizing the radio therapist that she hears <laughs> because that person is basically being Carrie Bradshaw. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and eventually she then f- gets into that role. And I, I think it's a very good portrayal of like a very professional therapist, but who also is like bringing their own shit to the, cause, cause it's a soap totally. opera. And so she's like got, going through whatever she's going through in that episode. Yeah. You can't help but see that when she's like in the, in the studio, but um, yeah, you should check it out. I mean, if I you like a, a soap, you know, it's, which I know you do, but it gets, it gets real tearjerkery. It does. I know. And especially that her whole trajectory was like cancer survivor and stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about grief, friend. Mm-hmm. First time you and I've ever talked about it together. <laughs> Just kidding. Um, I think it's, it's really interesting what they're doing with Carrie's grief because I could have forgotten that Big was in season one and that he died. <laughs> right. Totally. He dies in like the first episode, the right? The first episode, yep. Yeah. And then... And then it's like becomes about Che and Miranda and the other characters, but I I really appreciate it because Carrie is a very emotionally kind of locked up character. Mm-hmm. That the way we see her struggle is also like she doesn't have a big crying fit in the middle of the like street. She just well she starts did to struggle at her wedding, but then that was before he died. That was before. <laughs> She shouldn't have married him anyway, but, uh, <laughs> but like, I don't, I thought that was a little bit of a fresh portrayal too. So in this third episode, she is reading the audiobook of her memoir where she cannot get through the part that is specifically about her husband's death. Mm-hmm. What did you think? Now I want to ask you about the, like, not only the portrayal of that, but the way that she leans or doesn't lean on her friends in that moment. Yeah. I I mean, a couple things struck me about that, the dynamic of that whole situation. First, this book is written, like she wrote the memoir about yeah. his death and her subsequent, like, you know, coming back to herself. Yeah. And like the process of having written a book like that will have been very emotionally taxing for her. Right. So of course, when we when rereading it out loud, there would be some emotion. But the kind of level of avoidance that they have her in in this episode didn't feel congruous with someone who had written and done that processing on it already, because you can't write a book like that. And this is speaking from experience because I also have a memoir project and my sister's death is part of it. Mm -hmm. And there's difficult stuff in that story. And like, I broke out into stress hives at one point trying to finish that book. So it's, she will have gone through quite a lot of emotional stuff to write it. And so the kind of, I can't face these words in this Mm. as though she were not the one (laughs) to have written them Yeah, was a little weird to me. So I think that, again, there could have been a little bit more nuance into what it meant for her to revisit it or to say it out loud that was missing a little bit. I'm thinking of, did you ever read Chanel Miller's memoir, Know My Name? Yes. 
Yeah. So I read it and I also listened to her audiobook. And at the end, she gets really emotional vocally. Mm-hmm. Like you can hear her. And it's really incredible and it's so touching. And they didn't really they didn't really like create a picture of someone who who, you know, was in that phase of their yeah. grief. I think that's also the phase of grief is really is really key here. And I know Mm -hmm. it's television, but like she's one year out Mm -hmm. from, from witnessing her husband's death and like physically being there. Like you and I know there's a lot of different ways to like experience death. And like, I mean, I've, I've talked to friends over the years about like when someone dies suddenly versus after a long illness, like those are two very different experiences. Um, and big dies suddenly alone with her and like she can't help him and she can't like there is so much trauma involved in that totally compared to if this were like well he was sick for many years and and surrounded by loved ones you know like there are a lot (laughs) of different situations but um in that year she has like written the book Mm -hmm. she has started her podcast gotten her (laughs) groove back like you know all these other things which that is how life goes but like that this is something when she would have been writing chapter three of this book would have been what two months, three months after it happened. Right. Totally. For it to now be published and like doing the audiobook. Yeah. And something pretty heavy that I think you can see in the scene with Sarah Jessica Parker like really struggling, right? For Carrie emotionally was that like she blames herself, right? And like yeah. the whole of the internet also blamed Carrie for Big's death, right? Why was right. she just standing there? And I think you can kind of see her choke up on that word. Like I stood there for this length of time and it felt like forever. Mm-hmm. And so there's some self-blame, I think, that we're also not getting to that is a big part of grief too, like survivor's guilt yeah. and all of the things that you couldn't say or all of the ways that you couldn't be there for somebody who was struggling or sick or whatever. And mm-hmm. that that's there. It's in the subtext of that scene, but it's not being made explicit. Yeah. I think then what is really interesting is how she, she doesn't know how to process this mm-hmm. and like who to talk to about it. And they, I don't remember this woman, for, but I imagine she was in the original series at some point. The neighbor, the jewelry designer neighbor. No, no, the older, the woman who had the facelift and oh, who waves her down. Bitsy von Mufflin, <laughs> yeah, is her name yeah. or something. I expected she was in an episode of the original series that I yeah, didn't remember. She married Nathan Lane's character oh. in oh. the original series. <laughs> That's a good one. That's yeah. a good episode. Okay. <laughs> She runs into Carrie right after this breakdown and is such a breath of fresh air after what's been a really claustrophobic sequence Mm -hmm. because she's funny and silly and her lip is red from having (laughs) had a wax or whatever. And she's also a widow. So I guess RIP Nathan Lane. (laughs) Now that that you can put those pieces together. Um, But where she's like, Oh yeah, I'm I'm happy and I'm fun and I'm living my life and also I am dealing with grief all the time. Yeah. And Carrie just like has not seen that yeah. modeled, I guess. Yeah. Um, I think that's true. And what you said like that she's kind of a bottled up person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that maybe she didn't allow she would have had to put 
I guess, a lot of distance between herself and her writing, if she was writing this book, like in the immediate mm-hmm. aftermath of this death. And I really did love what Bitsy <laughs> was saying about like, sometimes it hits you. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you are fine and there's no rhyme or rhythm to when that happens, but it can really like knock you off your feet and it doesn't ever really stop. Like it's not like 20 years down the road, you're not going to keep feeling that. Yeah. There, she talks specifically about being in the second year and how she's like, oh, the second year is harder because (laughs) in the first year, everyone's making allowances for your grief. And in the second year, everyone's moving on. And you are supposed to as well, but it hasn't gone away. It hasn't shrunk. It's just there. And that's something, I mean, you know, obviously I, I think I, I have gone through the loss of my dad. And so when I see these, pers- these portrayals, some of them re- resonate with me and some of them don't, but mm-hmm. like, I remember the moment when I started being the person that people came to where I was like, oh, it's been a couple years now. And so people are asking me, hey, my friend's parent is just died. Like, what what do you recommend? And I was like, mm. oh. <laughs> what do you recommend? <laughs> I recommend. A necromancer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but like that, that they're just different. It's like a different, the life cycle starts at, at grief grief day one is like being born. Right. And then there's like now for the rest of your life, there's whatever stage you're in at that time. And it's not linear and it's not like, you know, and there's no blueprint because everyone's going through it differently. Right. And that's why I think also like the, you know, the standard Kubler-Ross terms Mm. and the, the order of those terms, like, I think that's also a little bit unfair for us to take on so hard culturally because it doesn't look like that for everyone. And Maybe those are the stages. Maybe they get shuffled up. Maybe there's another stage in there that you couldn't even really quantify. So it's, yeah, it's very personal. It's very difficult. It's very uh, specific to the relationship. And mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I think what what Bitsy said sort of allowed for that ambiguity, yeah. allowed for that space and allowed for like, this needs to be your process. Yeah. Um, go buy some shoes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <and> I- <laughs> Then she and comes I'm, back from Bergdorf's with, was one of those shoes, did one of those shoes have like a deflated balloon <laughs> in it? Possibly. Possibly. Would have like, matched her pigeon purse from the previous episode. <laughs> yeah, right. I thought she wasn't into the Judith whatever bags. One of she her had, boyfriends gave her one in the, yeah, it was big. Yeah. And she's like, this is hideous. <laughs> she had at least 50 grand worth of shoes in her arms. Totally. In that, on that day. Yeah. So she doesn't, this, this was really interesting to me though, is that she doesn't go to her close friends in this moment. She lets them believe that she's faked COVID, like that she has COVID. Mm-hmm. She engages with Bitsy by accident. Um, Seema, who I loved the way that she was like, look, I wasn't here when you were going through it, but I'm here now. And what do you need? Like, she's amazing. But mm-hmm. also she's like, my Birkenback was stolen. So I do understand what you're going through, yeah. which was perfect for her. That was yeah. actually perfect for her. Yeah. And then baby Carrie, the jewelry designer mm-hmm. is like, my jewelry business died. Can we just talk about 
Like, how is it possible that the periphery of the periphery of these women's lives entail like up and coming fashion designers who are designing for the Met, jewelry designers who are about to get like written up by Cartier? <laughs> like, yeah. how is that the the person, the young twenty something that she keeps meeting? Right. Yeah. I mean. I I feel like there's it's the invisibility of like anyone else. Yes, a hundred percent. That is the pain of watching this show. Yeah, yeah. Was it in one of the movies where Charlotte says, uh, "I may oh okay." Miranda starts to date Steve, a bartender, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and she's like, "I can't date a bartender. I'm a lawyer." <laughs> and Charlotte's like, "Correct, you can't." <laughs> And Samantha's, I think, also like, yeah, no, you can fuck him, but you can't, like, be with him. And Charlotte says, we like to pretend we live in a world without class, but we don't. And the Mm. camera pans out, and they're all getting pedicures. Mm. And there's just, like, four, like, Asian women at their feet. And that was, like, shockingly real world (laughs) for the show. Yeah. But we don't see... We don't see, like, even service people in this world. Like, we see a racist cabbie who won't, like, pick up a Black man on the Upper East Side. But, like, they don't engage with anyone who is not in their world. Yeah, and it's kind of unapologetic about that. Like, that scene of the pedicures in the nail salon is like... Yeah. We this is just how it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there's no there's no real questioning of it. That that yeah. scene with the taxi was maybe one of the places where it's come closest to making mm-hmm. some kind of commentary, but like the taxi thing is just like again the lowest hanging fruit of like the plight of An- a black man, right? Like Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, he's especially like somebody who is he has he does not have other like intersectional um obstacles that yeah. like another black man down the street would also necessarily. He's, he's light-skinned right mm-hmm. and he's he's presenting in a way that connotes his class he's like on fifth avenue in a suit like it yeah. just didn't make any sense <laughs> yeah i really that was really interesting to his mother mm-hmm. shows up in that episode and is very concerned with appearance mm-hmm. and that tracks like Mm -hmm. in the same way of like, no, we, we need to be seen a certain way because that's the only way that we made it. Gosh, this show is the Gilded Age. It really is. (laughs) I kind of feel like Gen X is the same as that, that old generation. Like there, there are such like, um, regimented hangups that I think Mm -hmm. Gen X still has, despite being the Nirvana era or whatever, or the Nirvana generation. Like, all of these women are still so buttoned up in all of these ways that like the rest of the world is becoming not. Yeah. So let's just take a couple minutes before we wrap up to talk about the LA yeah. side of things. I'm glad you brought that up. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. You have the floor. Okay. So I, when these four women first went to LA together in, during this show, I think it was season three, yeah. they were really driving home this idea that they were out of place, that like everything about the LA lifestyle and what it represents is not what they are about. And they're just like, can't get, can't wait to get back to New York. And what I did appreciate about, and just like that is that it's not doing that this time. Mm -hmm. It is, it's not trying to shift 
shit on LA. It's not trying to pit LA versus New York. It's showing people in LA who are very gracious, whether it's the surfer who lets Miranda mm-hmm. borrow his phone or the tattoo artist who's like, this just needs to be you. And then yeah. she gets a tattoo of her own initials on her wrist. So I don't know why he let that happen, but you know, it's a big contest. <laughs> and the other thing that they've been doing this uh, in this series is dealing with New York being shitty, right? Yeah. Like, the, Carrie did get mugged in the original series, but like Seema getting robbed and then being like, New York fucking sucks sometimes. And mm-hmm. even last season when Carrie was like, my neighbor is too loud. I'm like, yes, that is exactly yeah. what it's like to live in New York. Thank you for saying that. <laughs> so there, I think like the romanticism and the idealization Maybe that it's still there, but we're still getting to see other windows. We're getting to see an L.A. that isn't just like the New York Times lens on L.A. <laughs> right. But it's also the sex in the city. Like, there's a shininess to totally. it. Yeah. Which there is in most depictions of L.A. unless yeah. you're showing like L.A. is a shithole. But <laughs> we're in Hollywood in this yeah. show. Like, we are either on the back lot for a taping and it's golden light or at the beach doing planet cleanup or at the comedy store or whatever. Like even the tattoo shop is like, (laughs) this is like a Latin guy, this Mm -hmm. tattoo artist who specializes in robot tattoos. (laughs) Does he specialize? (laughs) I couldn't tell. (laughs) He's like, here are all the robots I do. And then, I also am really good at life advice because tattoo artists and hairdressers are most people's unofficial Uh (laughs) therapists when people like Carrie who don't go to therapy. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Like it is shiny in a way. And I love that Miranda's calling her friends and they're like, you have been there too long. You're Mm -hmm. going, you're at the beach, you're getting a tattoo, you're doing sensory deprivation tanks, you're wearing a (laughs) strap on, like you need to come back to New York, girl. (laughs) Yeah. The only thing that'll bring her back is is Brady, her, her son. Yeah, Steve died off camera. I guess. Yeah, I guess his back <laughs> problems were becoming too much to bear. <laughs> the I think they're doing a better job with Che this season, mm-hmm. but it is so. It's almost. I do think it's also commenting on itself, where. <laughs> Che is like, well, I don't want to be too cutesy of a portrayal of a non-binary person mm-hmm. because that's what they want for TV. And I'm not like that. And it was kind of like, I see the statement you're making, but also you're not doing this effectively. <laughs> right. Totally. I, I like, you know, getting to see those politics and like decisions getting made about a pilot and how a show goes and the writer the writer character is really funny, the showrunner. But you're right. I mean, I think that it could be really cool to see what the dissonance is for a character who is like, I have to portray myself, but I have to do it in a way that's like palatable or digestible to audiences. Mm-hmm. But I am also maybe like, I want to see in which way that they're still struggling with identity questions because it is there. I'm thinking about that scene with Tony Danza where the two of them are talking about like Italian, Irish, <laughs> I yeah. can't play a Mexican. So there's there's ethnicity stuff there, there's sexuality stuff there, but we are kind of just seeing them uh, talking back to the mm-hmm. entertainment industry's needs for them. So I, I think I want 
I, I mean, everyone has been saying this. They want more from Che. If Che is going to yeah. be there as like this representation of queerness and non-binary gender identities, like let's see what that is like. Yeah. And just to touch on Charlotte for a second and Charlotte being like a Karen, but then in the first season we saw she knows a lot about like black and African-American art and mm -hmm. she's trying, you know, and that sort mm -hmm. of thing in this season so far, she's dealing a lot with like, okay, so she has a non-binary child. So these are two different generations that maybe we'll see a little portrayal. And then she also has her adopted Asian daughter yep. who is angry about being raised on Park Avenue. <laughs> yeah. She's going through her Billie Eilish phase and writing songs about her angst. And Charlotte is using her sold Chanel dress as like the way to play out her yeah. anxiety about that, which is again, like so close to being relatable, yeah. <laughs> but then, then you ruined it. <laughs> yeah. Very, very interesting to see where, like, I, this was going to be maybe just one season. Now we're in season two. Mm -hmm. Who knows what they're doing? Maybe it'll be more cost effective for Warner Brothers Discovery to just do more reality TV and none of this. But um, <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of like this is a show that asks the question why and does not answer it. <laughs> and yet, like. I think the fact that it has been a th cultural through line for most of our lives, like, I'm curious how we're going to look back at this show when we're in our 50s. You yeah. Know, and well, see, I, like, I don't want to, I don't want to experience my 50s or look at my 50s the way that this show is looking at women in their 50s. But yeah. I am excited about Aiden being a part of this series. We'll see what that unlocks. That's right. Although he should just be with Nia, Nia Vardalos, uh, my big fat Greek wedding three <laughs> yeah. this year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the best couple. <laughs> <laughs> well, we will be right back to share some freakouts. Hey, listeners, Kat from the future here. Checking in on episodes four and five of the second season of And Just Like That... In episode four, Charlotte discusses her husband's sexual performance and noted sex columnist Carrie Bradshaw claims she's never for a moment in her life thought about male ejaculation. Carrie is one of the most fascinating characters on television. In episode five, I was really happy to see Peter Herman show up as a one episode love interest. I find him very charming. And uh, I was also reminded of this series' tendency toward being a live-action cartoon when Charlotte's husband Harry wears a wig that he thinks genuinely makes him look like Matthew Reese from The Americans. Uh, love some good wig work. Um, but mainly my takeaway from this episode was I wonder if the entire character arc for Sarah Ramirez's Che in this second season is going to be a response to the response to their character in the first season. They full-on have a queer Brooklynite in a focus group talk about being disappointed with the portrayal of Che on the in-world sitcom. And ultimately, I just hope Ramirez is doing all right, if this is drawn from their personal reaction to the reaction to the reaction. That's complicated. Anyway, back to the future. Now it's time to talk about what's been thrilling us, moving us, upsetting us, or infuriating us this past week. Pallavi, what are you freaking out about? 
I am freaking out about the new Indiana Jones movie, which I saw a couple days ago. It, uh, I, I read a review that it's not the best one, but it's not the worst one. <laughs> and it's a whole ton of fun. And I would agree with all of that. I would probably put it in my top three. Um, but what I loved about it was also reading some of what people have been writing about Harrison Ford. We've been talking mm. kind of about aging and he is an aged Indiana Jones. And that means that he's engaging with the role differently. They kind mm. of, they kind of, he's sort of like in his old age, becoming a little bit of a sad character. Like this guy who is very mm. swashbuckling and adventurous is now, you know, living in a flop house in Brooklyn. And so it's, it's really interesting that, you know, then you have this kind of daughter figure character in Phoebe Waller-Bridge coming in and being the source of the life and the adventure now. So there is something that was just so emotional and tasteful and thoughtful about that that lent a depth to this movie that I really appreciated. And are you a longtime Indiana Jones fan? Yes, from yeah. from the beginning, I mean, it, the first one came out in eighty one, and I was born in eighty four. But it, it was part of <laughs> part of my yeah. childhood. Formative. I feel like this is one of those things that, in the unfortunate reality and world we live in today, where they're like, you know, there was a lot of racism in the earlier Indiana Jones mm -hmm. movies, and this movie's set in what the eighties. It's set in the sixties. Oh, and, okay. Okay. But there is like, it's a really interesting storyline. Cause you know, what a lot of people don't talk about is how the U S brought Nazis over to help with the space race. Right. And so it starts with like, okay, we won the space race. We put a man on the moon, but like, now what do we do with these Nazis? Yeah. <laughs> you know? So yeah, it's, it's Indiana Jones against the Nazis again, but in a way that feels very real and, Again, there's going to be a fantastical supernatural element to it, but it, it feels very grounded in like the story they're telling, which is a big achievement. Definitely more than can be said for the Temple of Doom. <laughs> which, is that the third one? That's the second one. And okay, it was the okay. one that was in India and the mm. one that starred Kate Capshaw, the then mm -hmm. wife of or girlfriend of Steven Spielberg and was right. the most annoying person ever. Unfortunately for me, Indiana Jones exists as like scenes. I mean, mm. it's kind of that's also true for me of Star Wars, where yeah. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm sure I saw that sequence on television at some yeah. point, but I don't, I haven't rewatched the movies to like know which one is which. Mm -hmm. um, well, right, I, the imagery is iconic at this point, so yeah. yeah. And the, the Indiana Jones ride opening at Disneyland yeah. when I was a teenager was kind of like a big moment, but mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but I definitely want to see this. It actually, it looked really good. Like from the trailers, I was surprised that I was like, no, that looks like a ton of fun. Yeah, so. it was a ton of like constant fun. Two and a half hours of fun. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, I am freaking out in a angry way this week because my favorite new show, Grease Rise of the Pink Ladies, was canceled, which didn't totally surprise me that it was canceled. I knew it was probably on the bubble and sort of niche and didn't have like a lot of online chatter and a lot of these shows that go straight to like a B or C list streaming service mm -hmm. are very difficult to gain viewers. Yeah. Um, but what I'm really freaking out about is that it was stricken from the streaming service. What? They just took it off? Yeah. So a few of their shows that they canceled uh, last week or two weeks ago, they they said, oh, you know, 
we have to take these down. And I think it has something to do with um, taking it as like a tax loss. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. So saying like, well, this product failed, so we had to remove it from market. And so now it's a a loss for us. And we can then like write that off on our taxes, uh, corporate taxes. And there's just something about that that really is a great example for me of the divide between like art and commerce and Mm -hmm. entertainment. Mm -hmm. Um, Because like, by the time the announcement had been made that it was canceled, I was like still waiting for my soundtrack vinyl that I'd (laughs) pre-ordered from Capitol Records, you know? And so I was like, okay, so I'm going to illegally download uh, all the episodes so that I can have them because I don't anticipate there being a physical media release. Um, but if anyone ever wants to watch this show, now what? Like, yeah. now what is the recourse? And of course, there's a social media campaign, save the pinks and try to get another streaming service to buy the rights. That's not going to happen. I mean, Paramount owns the rights to Greece and the characters and all that. Um, but like, this is also one of the recent shows where they had one of the main characters had a lesbian love story. There were characters of different racial backgrounds, characters of different class backgrounds. They were dealing with a lot of things that's like, those are the shows that get canceled and erased. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that stinks. Um, I've seen so many, like, the, like, sapphic love songs were, like, blowing up on TikTok. <laughs> And so it's like, oh, maybe people weren't watching the show necessarily, but they were hungry for these characters because snippets of the music videos would be out there making a splash with young people. And it's just frustrating. I mean, I just don't have any... um, It it used to be even like if you liked a little indie movie, if you liked But I'm a Cheerleader, you could go find that at a video store and you could make a tape a copy of it off of the television. You could show it to all your friends and eventually it would become a cult classic. And now like the turnover is just so um, aggressive that Mm -hmm. it's really frustrating to not be able to have it. I'm curious too about like you're saying this was Paramount's show. They own it, but like, you know, a network that made a show that got canceled after one season would then maybe try to syndicate it with another network. But because we're talking about streaming, like there's the writer's strike is really about like, there's no transparency in how streaming Mm -hmm. operates. Like you're talking about, maybe this was a tax loss financial decision, but like, we have no idea. Like all of these streaming platforms have pulled some really special shows, originals that were like, not what, not going to find anywhere else ever. Right. And I know there's avenues, so the talent that's affected by this, a lot of these actors, was their first on-screen role or Mm. their first starring role? Yeah, of course, they're going to have copies they can use for, like, meetings or whatever for their (laughs) reels. But, like, that there can't be a growing word of mouth of, like, oh, you know, three months later, two years later, you watch the show on, it pops up on Hulu and people start watching it. And then it's like, yeah, we should hire her for something. Like, yeah, there were all women behind the scenes of this women. And, and like, uh, again, just a very, like, I, I did not expect the Grease prequel to be dealing with like <laughs> passing privilege and like queer identity in the fifties and, uh, a gang of, teenagers that's mostly mexican and how that actually p- would play out if the t-birds were not just 
white boys or Italians or what have you. And that just, you know, we had uh, the, the character of Trisha offhand mentions that she was in a concentration camp as a child because she's Japanese American. Oh, wow. And it's like, yeah, (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing. Amazing. (laughs) But you just have to take my word for it. Yeah, I guess Um, I do. Yeah. It's sad. I mean, that happened with that show Warrior that was on Cinemax and it had like a a small following, but when it moved over, when the Mm -hmm. platforms merged, it kind of had a resurgence and now they're about to release their, or they just released their third series season. So it's like, that can't happen. Yeah. Just take it away. Yeah. On that note, that is our show for today. Pallavi, thank you so much for joining me. Where can people learn more about you? Uh, You can find me on Instagram at Pallavi Yatur. I have my writing linked on my website, which is also up there. And I post some things sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, at the pole sport competitions yeah important always we'll let you know next time i'm at a pole sport competition you can also find me teaching emotional fitness classes at coa if you want to check that out awesome i'm kat spada you can find me at cat underscore ex underscore machina on twitter and be sure to follow feminist frequency at femfreak if you are a patreon subscriber be sure to stick around for the bonus episode where since we're talking about content television content for girls gays and theys we are going to talk about reality tv in our bonus if you like this show please help other people find it by subscribing rating and commenting on your favorite podcast app thanks so much for listening bye bye <laughs>